Anyone claiming that America's economy is in decline is peddling fiction. I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Raising the debt ceiling does not increase our debt. It does not somehow promote profligacy. I know words. I have the best words. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. purveyor of so-called fiction Johnny Profita and for those of you not familiar with the show all you new listeners out there we talk about politics and current events I usually throw in some economics when I can always from the uh, libertarian point of view and man there's a lot of um a lot of economics to go over in the last uh, week or so because we have unprecedented government spending in these stimulus packages and Donald Trump uh, came out today and he's talking about phase four now we are into our fourth phase of economic stimulus to deal with the fallout from the coronavirus and subsequent economic problems and he wants to do two more two trillion dollars more (laughs) what's another trillion at this point right yeah two trillion here Two trillion there. Pretty soon we're talking about real money. Um, these numbers are just so astronomical. Nobody can really wrap their heads around this. These numbers are just way too big for us to comprehend as human beings. Well, we'll get into that later because I, I want to go over some of the economics of what's what's happening as a result of our response to this coronavirus. You know, I am getting kind of sick of talking about this. It's hard to find anything else to talk about because all of the news, every single news story is revolving around the coronavirus. And it's just, I, I don't know if you guys are as sick of hearing about this stuff as I am. But I, I, I've almost started to tune it all out at this point, And I'm just enjoying my quarantine here. Deep behind enemy lines in the windy city of Chicago. If you guys are looking for an update on my quarantine situation, I'm, I'm still good on supplies. I, I don't think I'm going to have to go to the store for quite some time, thankfully. But my um, neighbors, the ones who, I think I mentioned this on the show before, there's there's been a beeping noise coming from their place. We're, we're going on three weeks now of this beeping noise that's getting progressively worse. It used to be like every 15 minutes or so, it would beep every um, 15 seconds for, you know, like two minutes, and then it would stop for 15 minutes. And now it's just constantly beeping. And, I, you know, they can't be home at this point. I, I've gone over there. I've knocked on the door. I left them a note on the door last week. That's still up there. I've contacted the building management or the, the property uh, manager, and he said he'd try to get in touch with them. 
I don't, I mean, if they're not home, I don't know what they're going to do unless they're going to send somebody over there who has the key to their place to go deal with this. I am on the verge of ordering a lock pick set to just learn how to pick locks. So, you know, I don't have much else to do during the day and uh, I'll practice on my door and I'm going over there, breaking into their place and replacing whatever battery is low that's making this beeping noise because I am on the verge of insanity at this point. Uh, I don't know if there's anything worse than being trapped in a place with a constant beeping noise. The, the good news is I can drown it out. If, if, you know, if the TV's on or something and I just close the door to my bedroom and, and bathroom and everything like that, you can't hear it. It's just when you're trying to sit in silence or, you know, sleep where um, you start to run into problems. But to be trapped in a in a confined space with a constant beeping noise, I think is um, dangerously close to torture. And the only possible worst situation I can imagine is if those people that live next to me are some of those people that are just trapped on some cruise ship. <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day. They could just be one of these uh, people that are stuck on a cruise ship and, and they can't get off. And it's been like over a month and they're, they've got another month coming. But, you know, it serves them right for... who Dude, I unplugged my uh, smoke detector so long ago just because it goes off every time you cook something. And I've got these huge ceilings. I've got like 18-foot ceilings in my place. And the smoke detector's all the way up at the fucking top. It's like impossible to get to. And it was going off every time I cooked it. So I just ripped that thing off. I don't you know. Hopefully my uh, homeowner's insurance people who I just stroked a check for the next year aren't listening to this. But anyway, that's what's going on with me. Just slowly going insane, listening to a constant beeping noise and looking for good shows to watch. I, you know, I plowed through all of the new season of Ozark this past weekend, probably within like the, the first night of it coming out or something. I don't know. I binged that pretty hard on Friday and Saturday night, so... I don't know. If you guys know any new shows that I need to check out or something you don't think I've already seen, hit me up on Twitter, at Pedal Fiction, because now it's just um, books on tape and um, streaming services. I have access to pretty much all of them. So if you got something you think I need to watch, <laughs> now that I think about it, Johnny the Jew has been asking me to watch uh, V for Vendetta, for over a year now this was for those of you who go back to the jew and the gentile days that was definitely something i it was like a running joke on the show we'd always you know be bantering at the at the top of the the show or whatever and he would always say hey babe did you watch uh, v for vendetta yet <laughs> and i was never gonna watch it i, I was just gonna keep that running as a running joke for it as long as this podcast goes on but now that he bailed on that, uh, maybe I should watch it. I, I talked to him the other day. Oh, he, he called me, which for those of you uh, not familiar with Johnny the Gentile, the voice and soul of so-called fiction, while I do enjoy talking into a microphone, I do not like talking on the phone. In fact, I despise it. I hate talking on the phone. And, you know, all my asshole buddies know this, so they call me now just to piss me off. 
<laughs> but uh, he, he didn't mean anything, but he just wanted to talk and catch up and everything because we were supposed to hang out before they put this um, shelter-in-place order up for Chicago. We were supposed to get together like the next day and do some grilling or something, but that kind of died on the vine, and so he wanted to catch up. He's still doing good. He's starting his own company. So um, hopefully that's going to go well. I'm, I'm real proud of him, and I hope, you know, he, he's, he should crush it. He's a real smart guy, and uh, I, I really respect anybody that can just go off on their own. I don't, he's got, you know, he's got balls of steel, that guy. He just, you know, quits his job. He's, he's, <laughs> he's quit his job a lot, and um, I, he must do a, a, a tremendous amount of savings because, uh, saving because, he, he will just quit his job because he's tired of it and, and go off on like some uh, venture that he's been wanting to do and, and see how that goes. So um, hopefully this one will really take off and he never has to go back to that nine to five grind with that thousand yard stare that most of us are all too familiar with. Anyway, that's about everything that's been going on with me. It's been business as usual here over at, at my uh, bunker in Chicago. Oh, you know, um, I think I mentioned on one of the previous shows that one of my sisters is a nurse and her um, significant other, he is a doctor. And they're both in Milwaukee and they're on the front lines of this stuff. And it's uh, apparently it's getting pretty bad over there. They had a little baby boy a couple of years ago Sebastian he's now two and and one of the things that's that's causing a lot of problems with these healthcare workers because they're on you know they, they typically do these 12 on 12 off uh, hour shifts you know and they'll, they'll work for like three days straight and then they'll take three days off but during this thing it's uh they're really all hands on deck right now and of course they're dealing with all of these coronavirus patients, so they're exposed to these um, to this illness constantly, and it's probably only a matter of time before they get it, unfortunately. And you know these um, these healthcare workers who have kids are running into a lot of problems with this. What to do with the little guys? And um, his daycare is still operating, which I, I thought was interesting, but apparently that's still going on. But he's been staying with my parents, his grandparents, for the past um, probably like week and a half or two weeks now. Uh, we might be coming up on two weeks, and you know it's just really hard on the on the kids because they don't really understand what's going on, why they haven't seen mom and dad in so long, and they start getting fussy. And so you know, the, I think they're going to take him back at some point, but then they're going to have to find some way of taking care of them with somebody in their house who doesn't mind being exposed to potential coronavirus every time they come home. For a minute there, it looked like it was going to be me. Uh, I was going to be the lucky one to go down to Milwaukee and uh, take care of him during the days when they were working, but I think I might be off the hook on that because um, another relative is flying in from California to uh, take those take those bullets for me. And uh, so I, it doesn't look like I'll have to be changing any diapers anytime soon. But um, hey, if anybody, any of you listeners out there want to want to babysit it, the most adorable two-year-old kid you could possibly imagine, you could also hit me up at Pedal Fiction on Twitter and uh, maybe we can arrange something. I'm going to have to vet you as not being a complete psychopath. 
And of course, oof, that could be slim pickings around uh, a bunch of ANCAP libertarians. <laughs> anyway, the, the one thing I am optimistic about, because, you know, a lot of these shows have just been depressing. All the news is depressing. It's nothing but, you know, economic collapse and uh, a pandemic spreading across the globe and the death counts are surging and the United States is taking over as the leader in cases and all this stuff. And there's not a whole lot of light at the end of this tunnel at the moment. But one thing I am fairly optimistic about is, oh, that's nice. They're, um, <laughs> it sounds like they're resuming the, uh, the uh, construction on my building now, too. I can hear I don't know if you guys can hear that. The mic probably is picking that up. I will try to filter that out for you guys. You know that um, $2 million special assessment I probably complained about on the show a while back? Yeah, they were supposed to be done with that last November. And as you can clearly see, they didn't hit that deadline. And it had nothing to do with the coronavirus. But I guess they, they took a break recently because of the weather. And I knew, of course, being the uh, prescient one that I am, and, you know, just an all-around very stable genius. I knew that they were never going to hit that November deadline and that this was going to go well into this year. And so here we are. It's uh, about to be April, and they're still still working. So in addition to beeping, I get drilling. Beeping and drilling. This is, uh, this is quite a way to live. You know, another thing I've... Uh, I'll get back to what I was talking about in a second, but I'm going off on a lot of tangents here. I'm looking into some uh, really nice, like I'm just going to rent a mansion or something and go hang out there for a couple weeks. I, I think I need a change of scenery, and I, I think you could probably get like buy up some place for pennies on the dollar right now because nobody nobody's traveling, nobody's vacationing. So um, I don't know why I'm telling you guys this, because once that gets once that idea gets out, you guys are all going to be doing it and then there won't be any places for me to go. But um, anyway, um, one of the things that I am optimistic about with this whole coronavirus thing and the ensuing economic crisis, you know, they call it a crisis. But really, the, if you know anything of of the Austrian business cycle, or you've listened to this show for any extended period of time, you would realize that the recession that the government and the Federal Reserve are always trying to fight is actually the cure for our economic woes. These, these big booms, these economic bubbles that they keep blowing up, those are the illness. That's the sickness. The, the medicine that we need to take to cure the economic crisis is actually the recession and they never let that happen. And so the economy never heals. I guess one of the silver linings here is that a lot of these things that were going to happen, like I'm going to talk about the retail sector here in a little bit, if I ever stop um, going off on random tangents and you know, the retail sector was just getting absolutely crushed long before the coronavirus. And retail is one of those dinosaurs. You know, th this is a this is an economic dinosaur that needs to die. It, it's, uh, you know, the um, the writing is on the wall for the retail sector. It is a dying. They are a dying breed. They need to be taken out back and just put out of their misery. 
And I know that means that there will be a lot of temporary unemployment, especially since a lot of the jobs that we've been creating over the last 10 years have been in the retail service sector industry. But, you know, the, the economy is changing. We are undergoing drastic, like fundamental structural changes in the way we, we live, in the way we operate businesses. And there is always some destruction in the creative destruction process. But I think we will all eventually be better off the, the sooner we can um, deal with, with what is eventually going to come. This is inevitable. And I think the sooner we can um, get it out of the way, the better off we will be in the long term. And one of the silver linings, if you can call it that, is that this um, coronavirus and, and having to shut down all of these businesses is really going to show you which ones were viable businesses that just had to temporarily shut down for the coronavirus thing and they can ramp back up and still be uh, successful and which ones you know were were going to fail regardless of a coronavirus and this just accelerated that process and there's a, going to be a tremendous amount of opportunity throughout the economy to come up with new ways of meeting consumer demands of delivering goods and services to people that you know we never even would have thought of if for not having to be confined to a space, not able to go outside for extended periods of time. Like I have no idea what some young, um, ambitious entrepreneur is going to come up with, but it, you know there is something to be hopeful about, excited about, and in, in terms of the the potential there, because you just have a, you have a bunch of people sitting around trying to figure out a way to solve problems and. You know, that old saying, necessity is the mother of invention. There could be a lot of uh, um, exciting things on the horizon that could really change the way uh, we live our lives, hopefully for the better. And, you know, there are some other silver linings, I guess. You know, I hear I've been seeing a lot of the uh, a lot of stuff going around on the Twitters and the interwebs, you know, of people trying to point out what they think the silver linings of this whole fiasco are going to be. And I, I, I disagree with a lot of the libertarian takes on these things, you know, like, um, well, I guess I wouldn't, I don't necessarily disagree with them. I just think that they're putting too much weight on, on what they think uh, the effects of these silver linings are going to be. You know, they think that now everyone is all automatically going to, be made aware of all the senseless, useless, counterproductive, unnecessary government regulations that have been bogging everything down. And while I did an entire show about that and how that really contributed to the devastating spread of this virus and made it, who knows, millions of times worse than it otherwise would have been absent that sort of uh, bureaucracy, that bureaucratic red tape, I don't think that's going to be the big takeaway from the vast majority of people who are on you know, Team Democrat or Team Republican. They seem much more apt to just point the finger, as they normally do, at the other team. 
Democrats just want to blame everything on Trump and his indecision. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi was out there talking about, oh, well, Donald Trump fiddled, people died. You know, so everything's Donald Trump's fault. And, um, you know, if you're a Republican, well, everything's the Democrats' fault. Trump wanted to shut down the borders. He wanted to build a wall. And you guys fought us on all of that stuff. And he wanted us to, get, you know, um, become less reliant on China. And that's why he put in all these tariffs. And you guys fought him on that. And so everybody's pointing fingers at the other side and entrenching themselves further in their uh, political team. So I, I don't think there's going to be that's going to be the big takeaway here or that, you know, everyone's homeschooling their kids now. And so there's less of a chance that they'll be uh, you know indoctrinated in some government school. Maybe, maybe. I mean, no doubt there is potential benefit there if we can do a proper job of highlighting and explaining to all these people that there could be, you know, potential benefits to homeschooling or, or private school, you know, schooling in a different way because the education system it ha hasn't, there's been no innovation in that, like, whatsoever. We still educate people the same way we did hundreds of years ago. You go into a room and you sit there with a group of people and somebody talks to you, somebody lectures you. There, there's like a million different ways that you could teach things. And there's very little innovation, especially in the government schools. And when it comes to the bureaucratic red tape and stuff, yes, we if we do our jobs as libertarians to highlight these problems and explain that not only are they problems, but they are much more prevalent than just in the healthcare industry or just with the coronavirus and that they permeate our entire economy. And they, they, they bog down everything every every single day. We just don't see a lot of it. And I go back and listen to the episode I did on occupational licensing, and you'll get a little taste of that. However, comma, any potential benefit from those silver linings I just mentioned and any other silver linings you may be thinking of, any potential benefit from reducing those government regulations or even eliminating them altogether pales in comparison to the amount of government overreach, the explosion of rules and regulations, and just the, the sheer constitutional violations. The constitutional violations that are taking place it all over our, our daily lives. I mean, the government overreach in times of crisis they don't have the constitutional authority to do any anything that they're doing right now. And it's just like anytime there's a crisis, all of this this whole constitution thing, that goes out the window, the the bill of rights, you can kiss that goodbye. You know, it, it, that's fine when things are good and times are good and there's no problems, but the second there's a problem, we just throw all that stuff out the window. It's got to make you wonder how valuable these founding documents really are. If the second anything gets bad, the second anybody gets sick or there's some sort of problem, we just abandon everything. I mean, what good are these documents if we don't, if we don't abide by them at all? I mean, they tell you when you can leave your house, when you can go to work, where, where and when you can worship, when you can open your business. I mean, th these are like the first three things. <laughs> yeah. Freedom of association, freedom of religion. They're deeming 
um, you know, they're deeming workers as essential and non-essential now, which there's no really non-arbitrary way for the government to do that. But, you know, what if you're deemed essential by the government? And what if you don't want to work? Then what? That, can they force you to work? Are we going to take it that far? Are, do you own yourself? Do you own your body? Or are you a subject of the government? Does the government own you? And they can tell you what you have to do and when you have to do it. And they're threatening to put people in prison, kidnap you and throw you in a cage for walking down the street now. I mean, this is basically, if you look around at what they're threatening to do to us, this is everything that we were all horrified to see happening in China just a few months ago. And now you've got people welcoming this with open arms and call, trying to figure out which number to call to rat people out for operating their businesses. These might just be hollow threats. Maybe they're hollow threats at the moment, but don't think for a second that they're not taking notes on what to do and how to manipulate people and how to control us. And now that they, you know, now that they don't have cops on the street, we're going to start seeing the use of drones more and more to to police things and and surveil us like the the boon to the surveillance state that's going to take place that was already the largest and most powerful and most intrusive in history is going to get 10 times worse if you didn't if you thought what was what happened uh after 911 was bad wait until they're done with this coronavirus stuff i mean this is this is getting to be pretty scary here and, you know, if they follow through on any of these threats, we could be in some serious trouble. And everyone seems to be welcoming this with open arms just because we're afraid. We're afraid of this virus. We can't see it. We don't know who has it. We don't know if it's going to kill us or not. And so here we go. Give up the rest of our, our freedoms for some sense of security. It's the exact same thing we did after 9-11. That set up a lot of the banking regulations that brought about the conditions for too big to fail in the surveillance state that we're dealing with now. So you'll have to forgive me if I, I don't see these little victories that libertarians may be having in terms of rolling back some government regulations as this, this great silver lining. Because, yeah, sure, we can get rid of a few of these burdensome regulations, but if we pile on a thousand other ones that are a million times worse and have the potential to change life as we know it, we're all far worse off. And that silver lining completely disappears. You know, it's a lot like what the government is doing with the economic stimulus. Because... You know, they're they're giving you they're giving some of you twelve hundred dollars. Right. And they're sticking all of us with a bill for I think it's like seventeen thousand dollars for every man, woman and child. So, sure, they can give us a little bit of what we want, but they're going to pile on at 15 times more of, of the things that we don't want. And, and somehow we're supposed to be really thankful for that, that little bit, the little bit of freedom that they gave us back. Uh, you know, uh, forgive me if I don't see that as quite the silver lining that everybody else does. You know what I'd love to see happen, though? <laughs> I, I was thinking about this the other day. It would just be hilarious because Donald Trump is out there and he's, you know, they're basically taking over companies now and, and ordering them to produce things. That was that whole, I forget the name of that 
Defense Protection Act or something like that, where apparently the government thinks that they have the authority to just take over your business and tell you what you have to produce. This is where we're at now. And I just thought it would be absolutely hilarious if Donald Trump started ordering some of these um, media companies or newspapers, you know, like the failing New York Times, if he just takes them over and forces them to make things like toilet paper, it would just be the height of, uh, of irony. And, you know, maybe, maybe that will get all of these people, all of these lemmings on board to realize the potential danger here since everyone holds the, these corporate press people in such high regard. If maybe they get a taste of, of what could happen, they wouldn't be uh, such cheerleaders for all of this government takeover. But anyway, I had a pretty good, pretty decent segue into economic stimulus back there, and then I ruined it with a tangent about the New York Times. But let's let's transition into the next phase, phase four of the um, economic stimulus packages that are supposed to bring us back from the brink of disaster. And let's talk about how those are all going to be misguided like the first three phases. This is a, a $2 trillion, So Donald Trump, might have been, I think it was over the weekend, signed the uh, $2 trillion stimulus bill into law. So that was over 800 pages. I mentioned you know, some of the boondoggle pork barrel stuff that was earmarked in there. And, you know, as Nancy Pelosi says at the top of the show, now that we've passed the bill, we all get to find out what's in it. And I'm sure that will be a, just a colossal clusterfuck of just epic proportions. You know, it's going to be a, a disaster. But now, now that that one's signed and, it's ready to be implemented. We have the next phase of the government's plan. Phase four is in the works. And they're talking about another $2 trillion. But this time, they want it to go to infrastructure. All right? The, the, the glorious infrastructure spending plans that every politician loves because they think that this stimulates the economy and... It improves our, you know, our grid system and our overall way of life will become more economically efficient because they'll make all these infrastructure improvements and it'll just pay dividends in years to come, right? Well, Donald Trump comes out today and says, you know, with interest rates for the United States being at zero, <laughs> I wonder why that is, this is the time to do our decades-long awaited infrastructure bill. It should be very big and bold, $2 trillion, and be focused solely on jobs and rebuilding the once great infrastructure of our country, phase four. That was his tweet uh, Tuesday morning, and that is today. So now, fresh off the heels of the first $2 trillion that, uh, that's going out the door, we now have congressional Democrats and, and Republicans in the White House. They've been compiling these lists of things that they say we need next, the, the things that we need to do next, right? And our infrastructure, this is the, the big thing, right? There are infrastructure needs that our country has that directly relate to how we are proceeding with the coronavirus 
Many people are teleworking or teleeducating or really communicating with family and friends, said Nancy Pelosi, according to the Washington Times. In an interview Tuesday with MSNBC, Pelosi said negotiators had already agreed that everything will be specific to the coronavirus in the next round of the legislation and that it wouldn't become a wish list. (laughs) Okay, yeah, forgive me if I don't hold my breath on that one. In an interview with the New York Times published on Monday, Pelosi indicated that another possible move was getting rid of the limit on state and local tax deductions, or SALT, as it's often referred to, That was part of the 2017 tax overhaul and affects California, Pelosi's home state, and New York. Senate Finance Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley, a Republican from Iowa, says Pelosi's SALT plan is a non-starter. So here we go. Here goes the tug of war, the back and forth of Republicans and Democrats. Millionaires don't need a new tax break as the federal government spends trillions of dollars to fight a pandemic, said spokesman Michael Zona. Also being pushed by Pelosi is a vote-by-mail system among the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. In terms of the elections, I think that we will probably be moving to a (laughs) vote-by-mail. Because what could go wrong with that? Oh, my God. She told MSNBC's Morning Joe on Tuesday, adding that it's a reality of life now. Pelosi claims she won't rush to push the bill through and doesn't expect the package to be ready before Easter. Instead, it will be ready for a vote when Congress returns. The White House, meanwhile, has compiled their own list based on what U.S. agencies say they need, totaling roughly $600 billion, according to Bloomberg. Okay, so no doubt, uh, you know, we're going to have every lobbyist in Washington lobbying for the needs of, of various businesses and infrastructure projects and everything that anybody's ever wanted to get done because the government's doling out another $2 trillion. And what do we know from previous episodes of the Peddling Fiction podcast about the government's ability to determine what is needed in an economy? Well, uh, long story short, they cannot do that. They have no idea Uh, You're going to have to go back and listen to the previous episodes. I don't remember which one I specifically covered this on, so go back and listen to them all. you got nothing better to do, do you? Let's suffice it to say that since the government has no uh, pricing mechanism and they have no way of seeing, you know, the money that comes into the government, it's all based on force, right? It's taxes, but you're forced to pay them. And it all comes into the general revenue fund as taxation. So they don't know which money is being pulled for what purposes and whether or not those purposes are being met. And they don't know how to, they don't know how to allocate resources better than the economy. No group of people or single person could possibly know how everything should be allocated. So the idea that the government or these agencies can tell you what is needed throughout the economy is just uh, is ridiculous and it's going to be a disaster as usual it's going to lead to all sorts of resources being diverted they're, they're going to have to be pulled from where they're being allocated now and diverted to these pet projects of the government and this is a prime example of what's called the broken window fallacy in economics, right? So the broken window fallacy in economics basically goes a little something like this, right? A guy 
owns a house, right? And he's he's going out to buy a new suit. He's got say $300 to go buy a new suit, all right? And as he's leaving his house to go to the tailor to buy a suit, there are some kids that are playing baseball out in front of his house, all right? And, they, and the kid throws the ball and it hits his front window. He's got a nice bay window out there and the ball breaks the glass on the window, okay? Now, the fallacy comes in when people that subscribe to Keynesian economics will look at that situation and say, oh, well, now this guy has to spend money to repair the broken window on his house, and that's going to be good for the economy, right? He's going to give work to the, the window glazier, and he's going to have to pay that guy the $300, to repair the window and then that guy will have $300 and he can go spend it and throughout the economy, et cetera. Right? So it looks to the untrained eye as if this is a good thing for the economy, right? He gets work to the window guy and the window guy now has more money in his pocket to go spread throughout the economy and life goes on and everything's hunky dory. However, the fallacy is, had that window not been broken, the homeowner would have gone out and bought the suit for $300. So he would return home, he would have a new suit and a fully functioning window, okay? Now, what he has is just the fully functioning window. So it's easy to see and this is what politicians love to do, is they point to the things that you can see, all the, the jobs that they create, the infrastructure projects, things like that. They say, see, look, look at this bridge we built. Look at this bridge we repaired. Look at these roads that we repaired. Uh, we, we just stimulated the economy, right? But if we're just repairing things that we already had, we're, we're no better off. We've just consumed more resources to get back to where we were before the road needed repair or the bridge needed repair or the window was broken. So instead of having a window and a suit, this guy now just has a window that he already had going into this situation. So he's just back at square one. And the window guy, sure, he gets the $300, but the tailor, the guy that was going to make the suit, he doesn't get it. So it's easy to see that you created the job for the window worker, and government loves to point to those things that you can see. What you don't see is that the tailor did not get the opportunity to make and sell the suit. It's the seen and the unseen what sort of projects would the that the economy values are not being undertaken because resources are being diverted to government pet projects does that make sense to everybody so and, and you know there may be a lot of um infrastructure that needs to be replaced the thing is the government's in no position to determine whether or not those projects are necessary and what, what you're actually doing is you're diverting resources to government projects. And in the short term, there is a tremendous cost to the economy as we are diverting and consuming resources. The stimulus part happens in the future. Maybe. Maybe it happens. It only happens if the costs of that investment are recouped through increased uh, productivity 
due to the infrastructure project. If that doesn't happen, the costs are never recovered and we're worse off as a society. Okay, and if they're going to embark on a bunch of unnecessary projects just because they have to spend this $2 trillion to stimulate the economy, well, then we're just squandering resources and we're diverting um, them from projects that, that people, that millions of people have decided through their in individual decisions that they are necessary and that they want them. And they're being diverted to some government pet project that they were probably bribed in the first place to earmark. So that's basically the, ec the uh, economics of the broken window fallacy. And you never get to see the jobs that aren't created, the projects that are not undertaken, because the government is diverting all these resources to their infrastructure projects. We don't know. It's, that's why it's so hard for people to, to see the economic effects of this, because it's hard to prove a negative. Okay, we're taking $2 trillion and we're spending it on infrastructure. That means everybody that was working on it, all the construction guys, all the raw materials that were going to another project are now being diverted because the government's outbidding the, everybody else for those resources and they're putting them towards whatever infrastructure thing they decide to do. And then they get to point to the whatever they build, new buildings, new bridges, new new roads, all that great stuff. They're, they're going to point to that and say, see, look, look at this project. Look at these jobs. We just created, you know, 150,000 uh, construction jobs to build this thing and, and look at all the good we're doing. When in reality, we, we don't know, first of all, whether or not those people would have been already employed doing something more productive that the economy actually needed. So whether or not they actually created those jobs or just diverted them is going to be unclear. There's no possible way. I don't care how long, how many pages they cram into this bill. They can make it 25,000 pages long. There's no way that they could micromanage and target the bill to only give projects to construction guys and infrastructure guys that are out of work right now and that wouldn't be working. So the chances are that they'll just um, pull people from jobs that they were already doing and put them on to new jobs that have been bribed into existence by lobbyists getting to government officials. And we don't know what, what sort of projects would have been undertaken absent that government intervention. Does that make sense to everybody? Hopefully I, I did a good job of explaining that. There are also just a, a tremendous amount of other economic costs related to the government response to the coronavirus and these stimulus bills and, and when they're doing things like you know, putting rules in place where people don't have to pay their mortgages or they don't have to pay their rent. There, there is a tremendous uh, economic cost to that and a tremendous economic cost to shutting down businesses. You, you have to think of it as links in a chain, okay? And, you know, I've talked about the, that little essay, I Pencil, before on the show. And if you haven't either read that, it's a short essay, or you haven't gone to YouTube and, and just watched, the, there's a video on YouTube about it. And I think Milton Friedman talks about it couple minutes long it's not very long but they basically detail how the the production process of of a pencil it is all of these really intricate links in a chain 
And when you have the government just arbitrarily shutting down businesses because they deem them unnecessary, you're breaking the links in that chain. And what the essay proves is that, you know, nobody can really know all of the, nobody really thinks about all of the little links in the chain just to bring a pencil to market, right? From the, the lumberjack who chops down the trees, okay, to the, the truck, the, the truck driver who has to transport the, the trees to the factory, the guys um, mining for oil to fuel the trucks, the, you need the metallurgy to make the saw to, to cut down the, the, the tree. You need rubber for the eraser. You need metal for the thing. You need graphite. You need paint. All of these little things that, that have like hundreds of other links connected to them in the chain of production. Where if you're just arbitrarily shutting down businesses because they appear as if they're non-essential, you're breaking that chain and you don't, you don't know what effect that's going to have on the goods being brought to market. Maybe they don't get brought to market at all now. And then, you know, just the other obvious thing is just trying trying to tell somebody that their business is non-essential and therefore they have to shut down. Go, good luck telling that to somebody with a, a mortgage and four kids that whatever, you know, store he has that, that, that's been providing him a living, allowing him to put a roof over his family's head and feed his kids. Good luck telling him that that's not an essential business. I, I mean, this there, there's a tremendous cost to this, and there's ripple effects. Even with, a, you know, it might seem like, oh, this is great. I don't have to pay my mortgage or I don't have to pay my rent. Well, there's always another side to that. There's somebody who's depending on that rent, right? And then with, like, uh, the mortgages, right, those mortgages, remember, the, the banks don't own those anymore. Those mortgages have been chopped up and securitized and sold multiple times throughout the economy. They might be in your investment portfolio right now. They could be in your 401k. Who knows? Who knows where all those mortgages are? They're not at the banks. They sold those immediately. So it's not just like, oh, the banks are going to take a hit because nobody's paying their mortgages. No, no, no. They don't own those. All those mortgages have been securitized, and they're in mortgage-backed securities, and there are people on fixed income that are depending on the principal and interest payments from those mortgages. I mean, that who nobody knows how bad or how deep that problem goes until you, you shut off that valve and you see the ripple effect. You know, retail businesses that, that aren't paying their, their rent anymore, that means that the, whoever owns that, that um, building that they're operating in can't make their mortgage payment. That could mean that those securities fail. Who, who knows what's going to happen? The, the thing is, it's just not, it's not as simple as just that one little aspect that you see. Like, oh, yeah, I don't have to pay my rent this month. Okay, but that's that's not just between you and your landlord. There there could be larger um, economic repercussions from that. And oh, while we're on the the subject of landlords and rent and things like that, there you know there are ways to deal with the issue at hand. You know, a lot of times libertarians just want to complain about everything the government's doing and, and not offer any solutions. But I mean, it's not like we haven't been through economic downturns before, especially, you know, everyone's comparing this to the Great Depression. Oh, okay. During the Great Depression, there were no bailouts. You know, people still had to make their rent payments or mortgage payments or things like that, 
or they had to come up with arrangements with their landlords for for ways that they could either make payments or or sort of weather this storm if you think about it from the the landlord's perspective if you have a good tenant you have a, a tenant with a viable retail business who it's pretty obvious, and especially in this coronavirus situation, that once this is over, they're going to have a, another a thriving business again. Well, you know, you don't want to just kick that that tenant out if they've made, you know, if they've been there for like five or six years or something and never missed a payment. The tenants like that are hard to find, first of all. Okay, and it's it's in their best interest to come up with some sort of arrangement that works for both parties involved so that they can keep you as a tenant and allow you to stay viable through this short economic hardship and see you through to the other side so that once this whole thing passes, they're going to have the good tenant and you're still going to have the viable business. Now, if your your business was art was already on the rocks and it wasn't viable, that presents a whole other host of problems, and that's why we have things like bankruptcy court. You know, um, it's a long way of saying it's not always so easy as just oh well, you don't have to make that payment this month. We'll just for, forego that, and there there aren't going to be any negative economic repercussions, or the government will just step in and try to make people whole with some sort of uh, loan payment or something like that. No, no, there are, there are tremendous economic costs to this, and the ripple effect could prove devastating. And, you know, there may be some other viable alternatives to just this sort of one-size-fits-all government plan that they just force on every business owner throughout the country. You know, we should really let individuals, individual businesses, individual tenants and landlords and, and people holding these mortgages and things like that come up with solutions that work best for them. It's not like they want to kick everybody out of there. They, they want that rental income. Believe me. And if you're able to pay that absent this coronavirus, they will come up with a way of making it work so that they still have their viable tenant at the end of the day and you still have your viable business because it, it, it benefits all parties involved. And there's just no way that you could have a government solution to the millions of different situations and problems that prevent themselves. It's just another reason why we shouldn't be going down this path. You know, people can work these things out. We don't just need this sledgehammer of government coming down and saying, this is the way it's going to be for everybody. It might be the best situation for some, but I guarantee you, just the, the, the sheer number, the, the law of numbers means that it's not going to be the best situation for everybody. Let the free market work. And when I say free market, I, I know this is just sort of an obvious disclaimer because everybody just always thinks that there's like some mustachioed guy with a monocle in the top hat and like a big sack of money over his shoulder you know, walking around being a, a free market guy. All I mean by free markets is individual people voluntarily agreeing to things. I mean, that's basically what I'm talking about. You come to an arrangement, an economic arrangement, voluntarily. That That's a free market. 
just buying and selling, offering things, accepting things on a voluntary basis. That, that, that's great free market action right there. And we should not allow one entity to tell 320 million people the way things have to be. So with all of that in mind, let's turn to an article that I pulled today that caught my eye. It's um, now it is from the economic collapse blog. So you, you do have to take that with a grain of salt. But the, the headline is economic depression of 2020. Many of the restaurants, bars and retailers that have closed will never open again. All right. It appears that we are heading in, into the worst economic downturn of the post-World War II era, and that is going to be true no matter how this corona pandemic ultimately plays out. There are some that believe that this virus will only kill thousands, while others that are warning that it could kill millions. But everyone can agree that this outbreak is causing an unprecedented fear. Even once this pandemic starts to fade, a certain percentage of the population will continue to be afraid to go to restaurants, to go to bars, and other small businesses that are open to the public. Of course, many restaurants, bars, and small businesses just were just barely scraping by during the good times, and so many of them will simply not be able to survive if a substantial portion of the population is literally, literally petrified to step through their doors for the foreseeable future. Uh, I, I think that may be overstated, but you know, the, the restaurant business is operating already on very thin margins. So um, I, I do think that a lot of these that have closed will never open their doors again. I think he's right on that. As long as the coronavirus persists, the U.S. economy is going to be in for a world of hurt, and it looks like we may still be in the very early stages of this pandemic. President Donald Trump acknowledged Sunday for the first time that deaths in the United States from coronavirus could reach 100,000 or more, adding that if the death toll stays at or below 100,000, we all together have done a very good job. Trump's assertion came after he was asked about comments of the nation's top infectious disease expert, Anthony Fauci, made earlier Sunday on CNN State of the Union that based on models, 100,000 Americans or more could die from the virus. Of course, the death toll could ultimately be much lower if effective treatments are made widely available to the general public. We shall have to wait and see if that actually happens, but meanwhile, the fear of the coronavirus is absolutely devastating the economy. According to the National Restaurant Association, our restaurant industry has lost $25 billion in sales since March 1st, according to a survey of 5,000 owners, and nearly 50,000 stores of major U.S. retail chains have closed. An estimated $20 billion in retail real estate loans are due as early as this week, according to Marcus and Millichap, a commercial real estate services consulting firm. Many retailers and restaurants have said that they are not going to pay their April rents, which in turn poses a threat to the $3 trillion commercial mortgage market. So you can kind of see this article's getting at that point where th these things ripple through the economy and affect more than just that one, that first point of sale that everybody's looking at. Back to the article. As this uh, crisis stretches on, all of the dominoes in the commercial mortgage market are going to begin to fall. 
What we are watching is deeply tragic because those that work in our restaurants are some of the hardest working people in the entire country. At this point, 3% of our restaurants have already permanently closed, and another 11% anticipate they will permanently close within 30 days. Can you imagine that? By the end of next month, 14% of all restaurants in America could be gone for good. And the longer this pandemic lasts, the higher that number will go. We didn't see anything like this back in 2008. What we are now facing is truly unprecedented, and there is going to be a whole lot of vacant buildings in the days ahead. Of course, it isn't just restaurants that are being hit extremely hard. According to the Wall Street Journal, a wide variety of businesses all over the country are already in serious trouble. Companies of all sizes are feeling the squeeze, especially retailers and restaurants that have closed their doors during the outbreak. Nike is asking to pay half its rent. TJ Maxx is delaying payments to its suppliers. Victoria's Secret and Men's Warehouse have furloughed thousands of workers. Cheesecake Factory closed 27 of the company's locations and furloughed 41,000 hourly workers, nearly 90% of its staff. Even if all of the lockdowns all over the U.S. were immediately lifted, economic activity would not return to normal because millions upon millions of Americans would still be deeply afraid of the virus. And that isn't going to uh, happen anyway. In fact, President Trump just extended the national social distancing guidelines through April 30th. So that means that it is probably unlikely that any of the lockdowns on the state level that we have witnessed will be lifted before April 30th. Across the Atlantic, citizens of the UK are being warned that life may not get back to normal for six months or longer. Here in the US, I've seen people all over social media clamoring for a return to normalcy. Sadly, that is simply not going to happen for the foreseeable future, and the consequences to the US economy are going to be extremely, extremely bitter. So he doesn't really end it on a high note. <laughs> Shocking coming from the Economic Collapse blog. But um, you, you are going to start seeing the ripple effects of this uh, shutdown take place. And we're going to start seeing economic numbers come out. I still can't believe that the market shook off the, the number, the jobs number from Friday, the unemployment number, came in at almost 3.3 million. The, the biggest jump we've ever seen, and the markets rallied. It's like, I, I don't know what they were expecting. Maybe the whisper number was like 5 million, and so they were happy that it was only three. But that was just the, the, the beginning of the, the, the um, economic shutdown effects. Like, we're, go we're going into the heart of this, and these numbers, I only imagine them getting much worse before they get better. We're definitely going to have to brace ourselves and like I said a million times on this show, I don't think that once this coronavirus thing is solved, that all of our economic problems magically go away. We're, we're only exacerbating them with these trillion-dollar stimulus projects and, and borrowing and printing and creating money out of thin air. That is what got us into this hole in the first place. That is one of the reasons why these artificially in, uh, artificially low interest rates that Donald Trump loves right now, the 0% interest that he's going to want to leverage into an infrastructure project, that is one of the reasons why none of these businesses had any money saved for a rainy day. 
because they can't earn anything on their savings. And they know that the government will step in if anything goes wrong and bail them out. That's the moral hazard. So none of them were prepared to weather a storm like this. And we're just doing more of the same that got us into this problem in the first place, only on a much bigger scale. So there are some dark days ahead. But like I said at the top of the show, there are still some reasons to be optimistic. So position yourself however you have to for this changing economic scenery, the drastic changes we're going to see in our economy. Uh, I think, you know, retail was already going by the wayside. So there are, there are going to be some big winners and losers anytime there is a fundamental change in the economy. You need to position yourself to be one of those winners coming out of this crisis. And that is entirely possible. One of the things you can do to help better your position is gain a stronger fundamental understanding of economics and politics and things like that by listening to this show. So I'm going to wrap there, guys. Do me a favor, download and subscribe and share this episode with a friend of yours, just one friend who you think uh, might be interested in hearing this or just needs to hear it for one reason or another. And follow me on Twitter at Pedal Fiction. You can go to our website, pedalingfictionpodcast.com. From there, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, which I'm going to start doing that again. I've, I've been taking a, a, a brief break on there. But you can also become a supporting listener of the show there. So if you can do all that for me, I will be back later this week, and we will do this all over again. Until then, you know the drill. Just keep on pedaling that so-called fiction. Peace.